Oh, Father, we do need your word to speak, to know at a deeper level, to remind it again and again that you are always here and you are always triumphant. You will always have the victory. So I pray as we continue in Psalm 42 and 43, what could be psalms of depression um, and discouragement, yet we can find in them a hope. And so I pray if there's anything left that you want to speak to us through this, your word, that you would have our ears, your burning coals would touch our ears to hear what you want to say. Your burning coals from your throne would touch my lips, that they would be yours, that the words that come out would be yours and yours alone, Father. I pray that you would hide me in the cleft of the rock, which is your son, Jesus. I would decrease that he might increase. Make us expectant, Father, for we know that pleases you. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, so I'm pretty impressed. This is a lot of women for a rainy day and a psalm on depression. I mean, I was certain... I mean, I had dreams. It would be like three of you, and that's okay, too. <laughs> you are bold, and I am trusting that God has given you a great blessing um, for being here, um, and I pray that he's not done yet. But let me ask you a question. What if yesterday you heard a knock at your door, and you look through the peephole, and there I am, totally disheveled, hair a mess, which isn't too hard to imagine today, with the wet hair, and you open the door and you see that I am, my face is red, it's wet, swollen with tears. My eyes are hollow, I have dark circles, my clothes are falling off. You can tell I haven't eaten, I haven't slept for days. Sobbing, I tell you, standing at that door, that even though I have been longing for God day after day after day, I feel abandoned by him. Groaning at your door, I tell you that I know my feelings contradict what I know to be true, and it's killing me. But what is truth and what is reality are not matching. Better yet, don't imagine me. Imagine your pastor, a mentor, someone you deeply respect spiritually, who you look to as a source of strength. What would be your response to this person? What would you say? What would you do? My guess is that most of us would wonder about the person at our door. We would wonder first, hmm, I wonder if there's some unconfessed sin. We might not say it, but wouldn't we wonder it? Wouldn't we wonder if there's an area of disobedience in their life? God has told them to do something, and they're fighting him, and they're not obeying. But once we're convinced that all known sin has been repented of, we might then wonder about their quiet times. How much time have they been spending in God's word? How much time are they spending on their knees in prayer? Are they praising God? How much time are they spending singing his praises? He says he inhabits the praises of his people. After assuring you that this one at your door has done both for hours, you consider encouraging them to fast until you recognize their clothes are already falling off of them. I imagine for most of you, I know for me, it would be embarrassingly uncomfortable to have the person I respect most spiritually be so lost. 
And even if it was just me at your door and not that person you most respect, wouldn't it make you uncomfortable? Because week after week, I stand here and I teach you with conviction and with passion to what I believe to be true. And yet what I've described has been a reality for many believers far more faithful than me, stronger convictions than I have ever had, and more passion for the Lord Jesus than I can, than I can even touch. Charles Spurgeon was one, considered the greatest preacher of the 19th century in England. It happened to him for the first time when he was only 24. Listen to what he said. My spirits were, so, were sunken so low that I could weep by the hour like a child, and yet I knew not what I wept for. And his spiritual depression, his depression he felt over feeling lost from God deepened because he believed despondency is not a virtue. He says, I believe it's a vice. I am heartily ashamed of myself for falling into it. Then there's Jonathan Edwards, the great preacher of 18th century, considered the original and the greatest theologian America has ever had. Edwards was frequently afflicted by times of spiritual deadness, even though he practice spiritual disciplines like reading the word, praising, prayer, fasting consistently. And then there's Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 15th century. He was no stranger to spiritual depression. In fact, he had so many bouts of it. On one particular occasion, his wife showed up at the breakfast table dressed in black. And when he asked his wife, who has died? She said to him, oh, Martin, God has died. And he said, oh, my dear, do not say such things. And she said, well, my dear Martin, if God is alive, why do you live as if he is dead? Everyone needs a wife like that. <laughs> and not only do we have these great men of faith, but we have the people in God's word itself. If you look at the life of many of them, like Moses, Elijah, the apostle Paul, you see spiritual depression. And the writer of Psalm 42 and 43 is a spiritual leader. It's the son of Korah, one of the sons of Korah. It's a person who is in leadership, who led God's people to praise him. And yet, this son of Korah is experiencing a deep depression. These men of faith experienced the reality, the, the pain of being torn between what they knew to be true about God and yet what they felt, that he is their rock, but they feel forgotten and it was killing them. And you know what I noticed as I look through history, there are so many I could have mentioned, that it seems like those who long for God most actually experience it more and deeper. Maybe it's because those who long for him most are more self-aware and care more about when they feel distant. Psalm 42, if we're honest, it's troubling. It's raw. It's real emotions. And really, if we let it hit us, it's embarrassing. We don't like it. Derek Kidner, in his commentary, calls this, these psalms one of the most sadly and beautiful in the Psalter. It's sad because it exposes emotions that make us uncomfortable, but it's also beautiful because it shows us that our emotions are massively important to God. He didn't have to include this psalm in his word. He did it because our emotions are massively important to him. So Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 teach us to talk about it. Get it out there. Let's talk about spiritual depression. Let's talk about feelings of hopelessness when we feel torn between what we know to be true about God and what we feel in our life at the moment and can happen for days on end. We may not all be there. We certainly probably aren't all there today. 
But many of us will go into a season like this. And if you are a new believer, please listen up because this can be so discouraging the first time it happens. But even if you've never experienced it, you may have someone in your life close to you that you love who is there or is going into there. Oh, may we hear God's word. Let's talk about spiritual depression, okay? Let's look at it as described in the Psalms. Psalm 42, 1 through 3. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? I think our trouble is verse 3, right? If he's longing for God like this, why is he thirsty still? Spiritual depression is a possible, raw reality for all of us. Now, some of us are more prone to it. If you have a melancholy, self-reflective personality, you're going to be more prone to this. Some of us may get through our entire spiritual life without it, and we need to learn to be sensitive to those who do because we're all wired differently. And let me tell you a secret, ladies. When you come to Christ, he doesn't change your temperament. He redirects it, he sanctifies it, but he doesn't change you. He wants to use you just the way you are. So let's agree that although some are more prone to it, we are all susceptible to it. So let's talk about it. There is a spiritual reality that we honestly don't want to face. Our whole being can be zealous for God and still not be able to find him. Our whole being can be zealous for God and God alone, and yet we can go unsatisfied this whole idea of this deer, this came out a little bit clearer for me when we were in um, Israel, my husband and I, and we got to be in a stream. Uh, there are very few streams of living water, and the deer know where to go. And so this deer has been in a time of drought, the way it's described. And what hunters would do is in times of drought, they would stand between the river and the deer because it was a sure kill. The deer would rather die than not get to the water. So the hunter could just literally stand by the river and wait. And the deer would sure enough pant so hard he would show up and give his life before he would continue to thirst. That's how desperate the psalmist is. He is saying, I would rather die than not find you. And yet there's no sin acknowledged that could explain his thirst. Psalm 32, Psalm 51, there's plenty of psalms that talk about the downcast, depressed soul because there's, there's sin that's been unconfessed that's rotting their bones. But this psalmist is not confessing any sin. This psalmist is saying, God is my refuge. God is my salvation. He's my living water. He's my rock. This psalmist talks about the enemies of God, meaning he's a friend of God, even in that moment. This psalmist has good theology, strong convictions. You can see it throughout. God is sovereign. He's faithful. His love is steadfast, covenant, never-ending. And this psalmist is a spiritual leader practicing spiritual disciplines. Prayer, fasting, being in his word, praising his name. And yet the psalmist is torn between truth and reality. We see it right in 42.9. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Can you see how torn? He struggles, and if we're honest, we struggle that he's struggling because it shouldn't be that way, right? If we're thirsting for God, we should be satisfied. If I have my quiet time and I play nice, I will feel close to God. 
My husband and daughter, Olivia, have this great thing they do every single morning. And if even we're going to be out of town, they do it four times in a row for however many days we're going to be out of town. But, or she'll text it to him. And she will go in, she'll find my husband, and she'll say, work hard. And he'll say to her, play nice. And then, then she goes off to school. And they do it every single morning. Work hard, play nice. Work hard, play nice. Because in our reality, in our Western culture, that works. Doesn't it? But it's not true for faith. Faith is more organic than that. We can work hard and we can play nice and we can still not have everything come out the way we want it to. See, our modern Western Christianity is moral deism. God, I will do well, I will work hard, I will play nice, and you owe me. We fall into it because it's how our culture works. I'm a good girl, so you owe me spiritual bless. No. I can do everything right and still experience spiritual depression. Oh, we need to hear this as we judge people. Temperament enters into this, spiritual giftedness. Those who have the gifts of discernment and intercessory prayer are going to feel a burden for the body of Christ that could lend itself more to spiritual depression, whereas people who have a gift of faith can always see God at work at all times, may not be as prone to it. Spiritual giftedness can bring into this temperament. There can be internal and external factors that play roles in it. Our physiology, chronic pain, chemical imbalances. There can be other things that play into it. But we can do everything right and still experience spiritual depression. This psalmist is faithful. He's deeply depressed. Doesn't seem to go together. Downcast means sunken depression. And in turmoil means great commotion, loud sounds, restlessness. Why are you downcast, oh my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? He's overwhelmed feels like he's drowning. His spiritual reality is causing a physical and emotional reality. His tears are his food day and night. He's not eating and he's not sleeping. And he's drowning. He's losing his footing, although God is his rock. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls as all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. The psalmist desires nothing more than living water, yet he's drowning in what feels like waters of judgment. Your breakers, your waves are flowing over me. Why are you judging me, God? What have I done wrong? I know you can stop it. You can calm the seas. You can calm any wave, and you're choosing not to. And his spiritual depression is so loud he cannot hear anything against the noise of his pain. If you've ever been there, the pain is so deep and so loud. You cannot hear. You cannot concentrate on another person's conversation. You cannot focus. It becomes a filter in which everything you see and hear and touch and taste and feel has to go through. It's consuming. Have you been there? I have. And it creates a social reality. <laughs> Others look at you and confirm and intensify your raw reality. Yeah, you don't look so good. You look like God has forgotten you. <laughs> Have you been there? I've been there. I've had, that's not the wounds of a friend. That's a wound of an enemy. What have you done wrong, Patty, that God has forsaken you like this? Psalm 42, 9, B and 10, And with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. And these adversaries can be our friends. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? 
Now, possibly this means that the psalmist is not only feeling forsaken, but there's some circumstances in his life. It's not just his countenance, but there's things happening. There's waves crashing over him. The enemies, which could be in the church and outside the church, are looking at the circumstances in his life and going, yep, he's forgotten you. God forbid we ever look at someone's circumstances, especially when there's no known unconfessed sin or disobedience, and assume Job's friends. I don't want to be those guys. Most commentators believe that this psalmist is in exile. God's people are being disciplined during the exile for disobedience. And even though he is one of the obedient, the obedient got taken with the disobedient. And so they're away. He's about as far away from Jerusalem as you can get in the land of Israel. And his enemies say, yep, God's left you in this situation. And that is the most paralyzing statement someone who really thirsts for God can hear. There is no more paralyzing statement for one who thirsts for God than, yep, he's forgotten you. He has left you in your situation. There are no voices that could hurt you more. So here we are. He's internally depressed. He's externally oppressed. And yet he fights all the voices, his own voice, the voice of his enemies, the psalmist finds hope by talking to himself. And again, I think for us today, this may be a word we need to hear right now. It may be a word we don't need till later, which could be this afternoon. And it certainly will be a word to us as we open our door, front door, to those who are disheveled, red swollen face, dark circles under their eyes. Psalm 42 helps us develop a spiritual dialogue to begin the process of finding and fighting for hope. So let's talk about spiritual dialogues. What are they? Psalm 42, 5, 11, and 43, 5, we see the spiritual dialogue that is repeated, so it's definitely important. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my God and my salvation, my salvation and my God. So we see that the psalmist talks to himself repeatedly three times. I thought about reading it to you three times. And I think there's an important thing we need to see about conversations that go on with ourselves. Paul David Tripp in his book, Instruments of the Hands of the Redeemer, says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. <laughs> you are in an unending conversation with yourself. Anybody ever want to take a break from your unending conversation? <laughs> oh, Lord Jesus, save me from it. And when we're in pain, we can't hear any other voices. You are talking to yourself all the time, interpreting, organizing, analyzing what's going on inside of you and around you. But there's a difference between allowing ourselves to talk and talking to ourselves. There's a difference between allowing ourselves to talk and talking to ourselves. One happens naturally. We do it all day long, sometimes all night long. The other takes intentional hard work. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his book, Spiritual Depression, which I highly recommend. The whole book is on Psalm 42. So let me tell you, it's hard to shorten this message for me because it's one of my favorite books I just reread again. He says, I say that we must talk to ourselves instead of allowing ourselves to talk to us. I suggest that the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this, that we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. And I love he explains this. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? 
Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they are talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's temperament in Psalm 42 was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. Have you been there? I have been there. I'm usually there every Thursday night. <laughs> and it sometimes goes through the weekend. Talking to myself, I hear the voices of condemnation. I hear the voices of, of lies. And I have to do the hard work to stand up and talk to myself. And this doesn't mean we stop doing the other disciplines. We need to be in God's word. We need to be praying and praising because that informs our speech. If we're not doing the other spiritual disciplines, we're not going to talk to ourselves truth. We're going to go ahead and join in the lies. So there's a caution. Taking yourself by the hand is foundational in fighting spiritual depression. In fact, I would say it's foundational in fighting any other kind of depression. But it's not always exhaustive. It's foundational, but it's not always exhausted. Again, it's not meant to replace our other spiritual disciplines of prayer, reading God's word, praising God's name, fasting. But it's just a blend that's going to help us add to those talking to ourselves. Now, I also want to give another caution. Physiology should always be considered in every form of depression, including spiritual depression. I see in myself that my lowest moments spiritually are when I am absolutely exhausted, when I've been doing bad nutrition, eating wrong foods, not exercising, and not sleeping. So we need to look at physiology as well. There can be chemical imbalances that can contribute that need to be addressed. There are times to meet with doctors. But whatever the source of depression, talking to yourself is foundational. It's foundational. It helps us neither deny our emotions, nor does it let us allow our emotions to define us. And that's what we do as Westerners. We become our emotions. How we feel is right in who we are. The psalmist is saying, don't deny them. Let's get them out there. But don't be identified by them. Don't become them. So to talk to self, there has to be purposeful, real reflection, again, based on the word of God and prayer and the praises of God. What we see with the psalmist is we see two aspects to his dialogue. He has strong convictions. You can see that throughout. But he also acknowledges he's a creature of change that can't always feel those convictions. Don't you love that? I love that. He has strong convictions. You see it throughout the psalm. But he also acknowledges, as strong as my convictions are, I am swayed and I cannot feel what I know to be true at times. I don't know about you, but that's extremely freeing for me. I got to go to a memorial service. I always think it's such a blessing to get to go to one. It is wise to go to the house of mourning rather than the house of feasting, Ecclesiastes tells us, because you take your life to heart. And there was a memorial service of a very godly woman who recently died of cancer, older woman. And when one of her sons eulogized her, he talked about her Bible. And he said her Bible was so marked up that the highlights, you couldn't tell where they were because they bled from page to page. But he said the two books of the Bible that were most highlighted were Romans and Psalms. Why? Conviction, reality. 
She knew she needed a savior. She knew there was a savior. She knew she needed to trust herself to that savior for salvation. And until he brought her home to eternity, she would have to live in reality. She would have to live where life changes and things are up and things are down. And so the Psalms became her way of life and her Romans was her conviction of who she is in Christ. That was so powerful. I was like, that's what I'm studying. Thank you, Lord. This psalmist, because he has both parts of this, he realizes his distress is unavoidable. Life is tough. There are reasons to be downcast. He realizes his distress is unavoidable, but not unendurable. Do you know the difference? Psalms tells us it's, not a, it's, not, it's unavoidable. You're going to have down days. Romans tells us, it's endurable. You have a Savior who's holding your hand. And so he talks to himself. The psalmist talks to himself. He talks to himself first about better days with community. Ooh, this is such a word. Listen to what the psalmist says and think about the application for us. Psalm 42, 2b, 4, and 6. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with loud shouts and songs of praise. A multitude-keeping festival. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and Mount Hermon from Mount Mazar. Oh, there's such richness here. Although he is cast down, he is not remembering life apart from God. He's remembering life when, when life with God was praised. I think especially for new believers, when we are downcast, where do we go? We start thinking, oh, you know what? Ever since I came to Christ, things are a mess. I'm going to think about the days before. No, you go to the place of remembering when God felt like he was your rock and your refuge. The psalmist remembers out loud pilgrimages to Jerusalem. These were huge for, for the Israelites. This is where they worshiped. This is where they offered sacrifice. This is where they feasted. They involved all the senses. To him, it would be not nostalgia, but reality. It would be smells of blood and smells of meat roasting for a festival at the same time. Again, it wasn't just a memory to make him feel better. It was the reality that God is to be celebrated and that I can find forgiveness, that he is real, and that he wants, to, he wants to engage all of me. I remember being um, out to lunch with my son one day when I was having a really long period of, of spiritual depression and just wanting to just try to spend some time with him and get over myself. And I was sitting and I was just weeping. We were having lunch and he, he was so used to it at that point, he doesn't even, didn't even phase him. And I'm just weeping, face swollen, all of that. And this woman knowing my situation and living through it herself twice, what happened to be in this restaurant. I'm 30 miles from my home. She walks over to me and she says, Patty, life will be beautiful again. And again was the key statement. She called me to remember who God is, and she was the community for me that I isolated myself from. God was gracious. What we do when we feel that God is distant, is we isolate ourselves. That is natural. That is normal. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit and much resolve to say, no, I'm going to put myself in community. We don't have to, like the psalmist, long for something we can't get to because we are in exile. Ladies, we have the opportunity of community all the time with the click of a text message. We can even send an SOS out for prayer and community comes in. 
The psalmist remembers how community, in community, supernatural transactions with the living God happens. He had to go through the, uh, the, the process of sacrifices and feasting to experience that transaction. We have the Spirit of God within us, and when we gather together and the Spirit of God is within all of us and we sing His praises and we sit under His Word, something happens that doesn't happen when we are home alone. Can I hear an amen? amen. If you don't know this, yes, you do, but you don't realize it. <laughs> The psalmist is telling us supernatural things happen in community. Where God is worshiped corporately, where sacrifices are offered together, where we together experience forgiveness, where we together experience his joy, something happens. In corporate worship, there's a transaction with the living God. God is more real in community. When you can't see it and someone else can, there is such peace and joy that can come. Turmoil is made worse when we isolate. We and our enemies, including Satan, tell us to isolate. We talk to self and say, self, just don't go out. We have to take ourselves by the hand and talk to ourselves. Or our turmoil will be intensified. Talk to ourselves, take ourselves by the hand, drag ourselves to community. I'm so grateful for people who've done this in my life. And I need to do this for people in my life. Rather than telling them to suck it up, try harder, work smarter, maybe the best thing I can do is be the community that chases them. Hold their hand rather than correct every word that's coming out of their mouth. Especially when we're, when we're working with somebody who has strong convictions but is saying things that they know don't match up. Sometimes there's just words for the wind, as Job says. Sometimes we have to have permission to say a word that gets blown. Job says to his friends, do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind? The psalmist talks to himself also about better days of enjoying God's character. Psalm 42, 8, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to God, to the God of my life. Being in community helps us talk to ourselves about God's character. Because even when it's not a reality in our life, we see it as a reality in someone else's life. We remember and we hear about times when God's love was so real throughout the day that praise filled the night rather than tears. When we're in the middle of tears filling our night, we can't re hardly remember a day. I was just talking with someone about this just yesterday. Was there ever a day that I didn't feel this way? Yes, I was there. I saw it. I saw it. We remember his steadfast love means his covenant love. And this covenant love is so huge, and not a lot of time I want to spend right now on this, but I do want to say just a quick word. Covenant love means that God's love is legally binding and passionate. In our modern world, we have two kinds of love. We have the love that's legally binding. Well, I'm stuck to you forever. I might as well just fulfill my commitment to you. And then we have passionate love, that when you no longer feel any passion, you're no longer bound, correct? God's love is both. He is bound to you. He will never forsake you, but it's not out of obligation. It's out of love. 
So whenever you see steadfast love, whenever you see covenant love, I hope you remind yourself that God loves you with a love that is binding. Nothing will separate it because of Jesus. But also he loves you passionately. He was willing to give up Jesus to love you. Charles Spurgeon, one of the ones I mentioned before, God is too good to be unkind. He is too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. So now that the psalmist has talked to himself about community, talked to himself about God's character, now he's ready to talk to God. And this is where we get in a lot of trouble. We tend to go and talk to God before we've talked to ourselves, And we march into his throne room and we rail in ways that God forbids. God wants us to be honest, yes. But I honestly believe the psalmist teaches us, don't go running and railing at God until you have stopped and talked to yourself first. Only when we talk to ourselves first can we talk to God as he deserves. Only talking to ourselves first about his character, the psalmist is ready to admit he's in the dark. See, when we talk to ourselves first, we remind ourselves who we are and who he is, and then we can say, okay, I'm in the dark. I want your light and your truth. See, if we march into his throne room without talking to ourselves, we don't want his light and our truth. We want to tell him our light and our truth. The psalmist admits he's in the darkness and that darkness is dividing his heart and he doesn't like it. And so he asks for spiritual sight for truth. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. The psalmist asks for light to expose what he cannot see and expose what he thinks he sees that isn't real. We need light for both. For God to show us what we cannot see and for God to expose what we think is there and is not there. The psalmist is raw and he's real, but he remains in awe of God. People ask, ask all the time, well, it's okay, I can just tell God however I feel. He knows anyway. Oh, let's be careful. Let's be raw and let's be real, but let's stand in awe. Does he not deserve our awe? I love the words. It's an old song. Uh, the song, uh, I think it was Point of Grace, God Forbid. And the words are, God forbid that I should find you so familiar that I think of you as less than who you are. God forbid that I should speak of you at all without a humble reverence in my heart. You are Father God Almighty, Lord of Lords and Kings, King of Kings, beyond my understanding. You are no less than everything. God forbid that we talk to him like he's just one of us. It's not right and it's not good for us. The psalmist asks for light and truth because he talks to himself about the character of God before he prays to God. He is not asking for physical deliverance. He's asking for something better, spiritual deliverance. He longs to just see God's face. He doesn't even say, get rid of the enemies, get me to Jerusalem. I just want to see your face. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre of God, O oh God, my God. God's light and his truth reassured the psalmist that whether he's homeward bound to Jerusalem or not, he can find exceeding joy in future reality. 
He will one day stand before God. He will one day see God's face. At the beginning of the psalm, that's all he longs for. When can I come and appear before you? That's all the deliverance the psalmist needs. He is content to hope that he will see God's face. And sometimes I wonder if that is not the purpose of our spiritual depression, to purify our hope, to bring us back to who he is, to remember that he will always be there. Forgive me for this very, this, this um, analogy that falls so short, but I think about separation anxiety for children. Most children go through this. They go, to, they go to the nursery happy, happy, happy every week, and then all of a sudden one day, it's like the sky is falling. They just throw themselves on the floor. What's happening for children is they somehow feel you're not going to come back, even though you've come back time and time again. And what people will tell you is, let them cry it out and keep coming back, and they'll realize you're coming back. Maybe that's part of why God allows himself to not be felt at times in our lives so that we can have spiritual deliverance from our spiritual depression, which is hope and the knowledge that he is there. And songs of praise are coming back. How much more hope is there for us than this psalmist? We have seen the face of God. Jesus tells us in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. God didn't just come back. He sent his son. Looking into the face of Jesus, we find greater hope for our spiritual depression than this psalmist could have ever found. So let's talk about our spiritual de deliverance. First, we have to look at the raw and real reality of Jesus' sorrow. Perfectly sinless, Jesus experienced a powerfully raw and real spiritual depression. He was fully God, and he sorrowed. We think we're not going to? He experienced a deeper spiritual depression than we will ever know, the depths of which we will never come close to plumbing. Isaiah 53 says he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. I mean, grief's his buddy. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus himself said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. The psalmist felt like the taunt of his enemies was going to kill him, deadly wounds to his bone. The taunt of Jesus' enemies were intent on killing him from the day of his birth. And they did not stop until his hour came. And he says in John 12, 27, Now my soul, Jesus says, is troubled. But what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. He could have said no, and he didn't. And on that cross, Jesus didn't just feel forsaken like the psalmist. He was forsaken. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus didn't just feel spiritual thirst. He became spiritual thirst. I thirst. So let's talk to ourselves. We have a far greater sermon to preach than the psalmist did. Do we not? We need to preach to ourselves, self, you are sinful. 
and your sinfulness guarantees that you will not see, that when you see the face of God, you are going to experience a spiritual depression that is unendurable. It's unavoidable because you're sinful, and it's unendurable. Preach to yourself, self, Jesus, the face of God, experienced it for you. The spiritual depression, the permanent separation from the God of the universe that you deserve, he experienced in your place so that you will never experience it. Now we're ready to talk to God. Send out your light and your truth. Let, me lead, let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, the cross, and to your dwelling place, the empty tomb. You're not there. Then I will go to the altar of God, to my God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. We need to pray to God for the light and truth to take us to his holy hill, the cross. See, there is a Savior who knows everything about your spiritual depression. He is acquainted with it. He knows exactly how you feel. We have a high priest who sympathizes with our every weakness. He's been tempted and tried in every way. If you think he doesn't know how you feel, you are so wrong and you need the truth. Pray for the light and truth to take you where he does not dwell, his empty tomb. He dwells now in you if you have trusted in his death for your sins. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is alive in you to enable you to talk to yourself when you're torn between truth, what you know to be true about God, and what you feel. You have a power source the psalmist never had. And his power is available to help you take yourself by the hand until he takes you by the hand to where you will dwell for all eternity, never again to thirst, and where every tear that you shed over spiritual depression is wiped away, never to be shed again. Revelation 7, 16 and 7, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb, Jesus, in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Stand. Amen. Oh Lord, as we stand to sing your praises, will you bring out a response from us to you? Help us as we listen to these words, as we sing your praises to talk to ourself. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Amen. Let's go to that throne.